Hi everyone, this is the Love Your Career podcast. I'm Lauren Severus, CEO of Love Recruitment and Love Care Recruitment. And the aim of this podcast is simple. We want to give you the best advice from industry professionals to help you grow and love your career. We want companies to be able to take guidance on improving their recruitment process and for individuals to pick up knowledge, hints, tips of how to progress their career. We do this by letting our guests tell their stories. Thank you for listening. Truly, we hope you learn to love your career. Welcome to the Love Your Career podcast. This week's guest is Ian Mullane, and what an honour to have Ian uh, in for Love Your Career conversation. For those who haven't come across Ian, he's the founder and CEO of KeepMe.ai, and we certainly see him here as, as a bit of a vanguard um, of AI and its adoption in the fitness industry. It's an incredibly good episode. We cover so many great areas. And if you've loved lo- Love Your Career podcast so far, we re- I really, really feel you're going to love this episode as well. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Love Your Career podcast. Today's guest is Ian Mullane, um, founder and CEO of KeepMe.ai. Ian, I'm actually really excited to have you here today. I'll tell you why. Um, there's three reasons. One, firstly, and we've spoken about this before in conversations we've had about who luck in life, and it's how people talk about you. And there's a couple of people we've spoken about that we're mutually connected to that speak about you so highly, and I'm really looking forward to get, getting to know you better today. Also, your story and your background is incredibly exciting and it's new and I really want to get into that today um, in some of the areas we've spoken about. Also, the last one is the obvious, is AI. It's, it's a new hot topic and I say new hot topic, I'm sure we'll get into that. Is it new or is it not? We'll talk about that. But you, you are clearly the industry head, figurehead of, of how AI is going to unfold in our sector. And to have you here and not delve into that today in a bit more depth would be a mistake. So I'm really looking forward to doing that today with you, if that's okay. Great, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So we'll start with the first question we always start with, the obvious one. It's the Love Your Career podcast. Have you loved your career so far? I've got a question for you on that one then. So Do it. has anyone <laughs> ever answered to the negative? The only time someone's answered to the negative is to add balance. But the answer to that question is no. No one's ever said no because I think a career journey is often about the learning curve. But people often identify, I have, have I enjoyed all of it? Absolutely not. I think Marianne said that. But overall, yes, of course I have, because it takes you on the journey. Boom, okay. I mean, and, and that's kind of where I'm at. Have I enjoyed it all? No, of course not. There's been many, many ups and downs. But am I happy where I am at this moment? Yes. Nice. Am I a sum of everything that's happened before? Yes. So therefore, I've got to argue yes, but that doesn't mean there hasn't been <laughs> quite a few ups and downs during it. Do you mind talking us through that winding way? Because it's such a great background. You've worked in FinTech, you've done other things. Talk, do you mind talking us through that journey? Yeah, unfortunately with age, it probably increases the length to that particular aspect of it. But uh, yeah, so I started off in commercial banking in the city. Boring as, got out of that as soon as it was, it was possible. And I was fortunate to have parents that didn't want to keep me to be held to a particular career in that particular aspect. Yeah. Um, went into investment management, um, found that slightly less boring on that particular side. The trading aspect I enjoyed, the math aspect I enjoyed, but what I very quickly got involved in was technology. and. Technology in the financial markets is always a big investment item. You can always be comfortable that companies are going to do that. 
I, even while I was there doing that uh, and working in the analytical aspect of investment management, um, I was building products. I, I built uh, margin calculation for traded options. I built a little commercial product. And this is before commercial software was, was really available, which gave you an understanding whether you're being charged too much bank interest okay. by your bank, which you know at the time was, was a pretty big thing. And that was designed for the consumer? It was, and, and also for business users as well. Okay. Now, I, I wasn't really good at monetizing it then and uh, probably got taken advantage of. I was in my early 20s on that side, but nevertheless, it was my initial, probably my first entrepreneurial foray, I could say at that stage. Um, I was fortunate at 24 to be able to marry the two and go to what is now Thomson Reuters and join the European sales organization for a investment management product. Um, I, I was the baby of the team by basically a decade, right? So it was virtually unheard of at that stage, but I was coming at it with a technology experience and a willingness to learn. And I clearly must have come across better in interview than, than I hoped because I, I, I did get it. I think being a physical specimen, the, the size that I am as well, probably meant that <laughs> age-wise they, they, they forgot some of it. Um, two years later, there was a organizational change within Thompson and um, I realized that there was an opportunity for me to progress in that organization. I'd just become the global top salesperson at that stage. Yeah. I'd been provided crappy territories. They gave me Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and the United Kingdom for a US product. And uh, I was able to, because I didn't have, I had ignorance. I didn't have an understanding that these were crappy territories. I was able to very quickly ignorance work is them. It is bliss. <laughs> and I was able to work those ones in. Now, um, achieving what I did, when I found out that this opportunity was there, I cold called the president of the business and I actually asked her, was there a possibility that I could take over as the European Sales and Marketing Director at 26 years of age? Um, and three weeks later, I was the Sales and Marketing Director for Europe for, for Thomson Reuters. And that was a successful period, but it was a big growth period for me. I was in my mid-twenties, maturity probably wasn't at its highest. I still had a big passion for a social life, shall we say, but at the same time I was working for a very large business yeah. that had very big targets and, and big aspects of it. I was headhunted um, by a company called SS&C, who incidentally now own Thompson and they um, wanted me to come across and to set up a European sales and marketing operation for themselves. They had just IPO'd at this time. Um, ego or not, I think probably ego driven at that time, I took the airplane ticket, headed over to the United States and spent 48 hours with their management team. And they made me an offer from a financial perspective which was absolutely impossible to ignore. But something for the first time in my life, maturity started to kick in and I stated that that was irrelevant if I could not bring the team with me. And that was, that was just not something that happened. Mm. Right? You didn't bring an entire sales and marketing team How big you. was the team at that point? It was 19 strong. Um, Bill Stone, still to this day, uh, the chairman and CEO of SSNC, which is a multi-billion dollar enterprise now, uh, Bill looked me in the eyes and said, let's do it, let's get it done. And what that started was an incredibly challenging period in my life because the big Thompson Corporation decided that they wanted to enforce all of the non-competes and the rest of the stuff, and we ended up in the High Court. Yeah. And what was then the first 
big provision in that particular area where that actually happened. We won, which was great, and the team moved over. Um, but that was a, a period where I learned a lot about myself, but also about how to deal with the adversity of trying to build a team in less than ideal circumstances. Because we were coming over as a team that had profile, expectation, but also the tinge of what had gone on previously before and building that out. Roll forward three years and SS&C had acquired a interest in an energy trading and risk management platform called Caminus at the time. And the COO of um, SS&C um, had taken the CEO's role. And he asked whether I would come the European Managing Director. I was 29 by this stage. And I and a number of my team from SSNC, we, we joined. Fantastic period of life for me in, in, in growth terms. It was a pre-IPO. We went, we, we IPO'd on NASDAQ during that period. It was a team that was filled with Cambridge and Oxford PhDs, um, literally nuclear scientists, as we were doing all of the valuations on the big power assets, new electricity trading range, really heavy duty math stuff, which I enjoyed, but more importantly, an environment where it was very intellectually rigorous from that side of things. Caminus was acquired by SunGuard, or FIS as they're now called, which was S&P 500. I decided at 32, I was not going to continue my role there and then. I was questioning what I was actually trying to achieve in my career. And I took an, uh, uh, I took an engagement via Deutsche Bank in the Cook d'Azur, which is not a hardship posting. Awful. It was awful, yeah. Um, How did you possibly cope with that? I know, it was tough, it was tough. But you get through these things. And um, I was running uh, an asset management section down there um, in a place called Sophia Antipolis, which is um, uh, where we lived not too far away, Balbon Mujan. Beautiful part of the world. My wife was pregnant at that stage, and we had our first one joined. Um, SunGuard then telephoned up and said, what is the possibility that you would like to go out to Singapore and become the MD of the business over on that side? And um, even though we were a few weeks away from the birth of our first child and we'd only just moved to France, we decided to go for it. And in 2003, um, I became the managing director of SunGuard over in Asia Pacific and there was a couple of hundred staff there. We were uh, rather a bit part of the overall global business, but very quickly, I'd rather be lucky than good, something you'll hear a lot. My story is um, SunGuard was part of what was the second largest leverage buyout in history, where the biggest private equity, the Glorious 7 came and they paid 11.5 billion to buy us out. What that meant was that they needed to see growth and they wanted to align the business with Asia Pacific. We went from 400 to 2,000 staff in a matter of 18 months. We acquired a number of businesses. Yeah. We grew a great deal. And I was asked to become the chief operating officer. Anybody who knew me at that stage would say that Ian was on the trajectory that he would have wanted to be. I was very open from quite a young age, and it's because of the family I grew up in. I wanted to be a CEO. I wanted to 
run a large business not my own business a large business i wanted the responsibility i liked it i grew up in a household where business was made to feel like rock and roll it was attractive it was sexy there was just the characters the interplay the competitiveness the disciplines all of those type of things were a big part so i wanted to do it 18 months into running you know a significant sized business you know with with you know hundreds of millions of dollars worth of revenue I was in New York, sitting around the table with the global leadership, and we were planning, it was November, and we were planning what was gonna go on in the following year, setting targets, looking at those aspects. And I looked around the table, and I didn't feel that anybody at that table had values aligned with mine, and I didn't feel I was gonna be able to get excited for this for okay. another year. I left that room, I got into a taxi, I found a mentor of mine who himself had been an ex-president in Sungarden, told him I'm leaving, I'm going to leave the following day. And he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know yet. And I flew back into Singapore, two children under three, went into my wife, my, my poor long-suffering wife who's been on this journey with me for over 30 years and said to her, I'm leaving Sungarden, I'm going to go immediately okay. you know, and I will take it from there. Because the, value, the values was that important. It was gone. It wasn't, and, and the motivation was there. And quite frankly, I was losing myself to the culture, and the culture just wasn't aligned. Um, and that's where entrepreneurism really started for me. Um, and again, you know, we can knit these together in a really neat little story, Do but it. yeah, but they're not. <laughs> the, the reality is that it's a lot different than that. Um, I got into my fitness, I was boxing. Boxing was an interest of mine at that time, but the in Singapore, the only place to box was actually on an open concrete car park where they used to take the bags out and hang them on poles each day. So I decided that I would open a boxing club that specifically would be for people like myself who wanted an environment that would work. I found a property underneath an old stadium and it was mispriced. They got it wrong, 99 cents a square foot in a place like Singapore where you're lucky if you're not paying 25 a square foot. And I signed for 20,000 square feet on the spot there and then, wrote the deposit and gave the check over. I went home and I said to my wife, fantastic, I've got a 20,000 square foot boxing club turning up. And she said, you bloody haven't. <laughs> and she went, what are you gonna do with a 20,000 square foot boxing club? And she went, listen, I'll give you 1,500 square feet for the rest of it. I want to build an indoor children's playground, air-conditioned. The only ones in Singapore were little, tiny, small ones because we had two under three and we knew. So we built this business called Fidgets, which was an indoor children's playground. It was an incredible success by any stretch of the imagination. I, I think payback on the investment is a lot. We had to back ourselves a lot then. Yeah, I mean, we must have put in half a million of our own money. Or, well, we're the only shareholders. We got half a million just into the equipment. And then we had to build the boxing club at the same time on the same floor. Think about it. You've got a children's playground under six and you've got an adult's boxing club next door. Bit weird, but nevertheless, it, it worked. worked, right? It did work. The boxing club was before its time. Yeah. It had biometric entry. It was 24 hours a day. This is 2007. You had cameras so you could see who was training in there, so you could choose if you wanted to go in, and you had the capacity to take over the music yeah. system. It built a cult following, and because of that, we got approached by rugby clubs, which is a big thing in Singapore, to do white collar boxing. And we put on our first black tie event in 2008. During that period, 400 people attended. We raised a couple of hundred thousand for a local charity that we were doing work for. And that then kicked off a whole new world. Okay. 
That world being that 10 years later, we've done 70 of those events. We've done them in Hong Kong, we've done them in Singapore. They were feeded on ESPN. They, were, uh, they raised over three and a half million US dollars for the Children's Surgical Center, which I'm a board member of over in Cambodia. But it also had individuals in the Singapore society and the sports council looking and saying, how can we use these guys who are relatively innovative to be able to do this stuff? So what they did was, we, they then asked us to get involved in other stuff. So we were involved in bringing Formula One to Singapore. We were involved with the FedEx ATP tour. We were involved in bringing over Pelé. We were born and bringing over Manchester United, Chelsea, Everton, mm. all of those aspects. That then generates Localize, which was a social media analytics platform, yeah. which I uh, founded to be able to provide the big brands the opportunity to be able to understand whether social media was actually giving them a payback, right? So solving my own problem, and that's a, a theme in here, Absolutely. right? Which we sold in 2020 to a UK agency, and then. In 2012, we moved back to the UK. My daughter has cerebral palsy and we didn't feel that the schooling there was going to be able to allow her to thrive to the mm. way she was. I left the businesses in perfectly good hands with the team over there, but in 2013, 14, um, the business, particularly the Vanda Boxing, which is now in 10,000 square foot and the CBD of a couple of thousand members, that as a business was going to come under competitive pressure. And I thought, what is the possibility of me being able to use my financial engineering experience to be able to bring AI into the data set and predict retention? And as I sit in front of you today, I'm the founder and CEO of Keep Me. We have to talk about that now. Okay. So tell us about Keep Me AI. Tell me, tell us about the value it adds to fitness operators, gyms across the world. So the premise of Keep Me is a number of areas. It started off with, can we use the data that exists within a club operations to be able to predict the possibility that a member will stay or go at the next commercial opportunity yeah. that they have? We use a methodology called machine learning, random forest machine learning to be able to do that. Highly accurate, and it was found that we could do. Yeah. Any operator should and could work out if a member will stay or go based on the activity in the previous 30 days in the final days of their membership. But they generally disengage by that stage, the member. So they don't have the capacity to change that outcome. With Keep Me, you're given a highly accurate understanding, even in month two of a 12 month membership of the probability of whether they will stay or they will go. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is then you need to, once you've told them who's likely to go, you need to equip them with the tools to do something about it. Yeah. So Keep Me has a lot of capabilities around engagement, but automation as well. So when you marry AI with automation, you're able to do personalization at scale. Yeah. So that means that the, um, the much lauded member journey can actually be implemented with confidence because both AI is channeling into the decision, but the automation's making sure it happens. More recently, we're now engaged, uh, the customers have what's called Keep Me Creator, which is utilizing large language models and generative AI on the content aspect. So yeah. feedback from customers has always been, and, and it's a strain for operators. Operators have a continuing and increasing amount of 
content creation, which they must do on a daily basis. Absolutely. Sales member engagements, whether it be their blogs, SEO, any of that aspect of it needs to happen. Not only the creation of it, but having it in sync with in other, sync. other elements of it. Yeah. And being able to make sure that it's been utilized properly as well. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's got a high cost to it as well. What Keep Me Creator does is it learns the brand voice from all of the existing content that exists around the brand on their website. And then it puts guardrails around all future content creation. So that means that I can come into a business and I may not have the experience of the brand marketing team, but if I was to craft an email to announce a new class schedule, I could utilize Keep Me Creator for it and Keep Me Creator will make sure it goes out in the brand voice. So central marketing or the marketing function doesn't have to worry whether the brand voice is being compromised of any. Very popular obviously for single site operators themselves that need to do the content creation, but also the larger operators that want to be able to democratize who can actually do content creation in the branch level. We've spoken separately about the sheer vastness of AI, yeah. but we also spoke about, is there a particular reason why it's having its time and day now? Why is AI, when it's been so embedded in what we do for many years, and there's so many common areas where people didn't realize AI is being used, which I'm, which I'm sure you'll cover. If you don't mind, yeah. please do. But why do you think AI is having its day now? Why do I think AI is having its day now? Um, I, I align it with pretty much what happened in the early 90s as well. So on the trading floor, we would have been using the internet. The internet was something which was uh, becoming an increasingly powerful tool, but it's still viewed as quite technical and it wasn't something that you would class as being consumer ready. Then in you know, 94, something came along called a web browser, and that all changed instantly overnight where everyone could extract value from the internet. ChatGPT is effectively the web browser when it comes to AI, because what they've done is they've produced an interface which goes over the top of an incredibly sophisticated model and allows anybody to be able to extract value from it. Yeah when you can make anybody have the capacity to extract value from something, that's when it's going to start to gain its traction. And that's why we are seeing it, because you are quite correct. Yeah. Nothing that's going on at the moment hasn't been around for a long, long time now. Absolutely, and you think of the common ones, you, you pick up your phone and you shine your face and it opens yeah. up because of Face ID. In Google Maps and Google Search, you, you go. go onto social media, you go onto Netflix, and the predictive nature of what you want to look at, that's all AI, isn't yes. it? And it's not just even that. What people don't realize at the moment is, is that uh, yeah, the commercial facing aspects of AI is great, but what AI is very good at doing is reducing the manual processes, which no one wants to do. And so our accounting software, our HR software, all of these type of things, they've now got back-end processes, which AI will be managing, yeah. which you won't see in release notes, and no one's gonna put it out as a new feature, but what it is doing is, is making sure that these are more resilient, more solid, more stable platforms as a whole. So it is absolutely everywhere. I find this so, so interesting and it blows my mind in so many ways as well. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions sure. and then we'll move on to some more, more, more career stuff. In terms of um, future applications, obviously you've already clearly are vanguard in the um, application right now for AI in our industry. What other applications do you think our industry will see with the use of AI? I think the 
it, it, you look at a, a gym operations, you know, we're already starting to see the impact it possibly has relative to PT. Yeah. I think there's a number of areas in there. There's the visual aspect of it, right, where we can actually, you know, utilize that for there. But I think that it's going to be in the prescription of more customization overall. Yeah. PT would be one area of it. I think when it comes to personalization, right, we're already now at a stage where personalization moves from if their gender is male, then make sure that the visual they get with this particular creation is male, to if the gender is male and the age is this, then the text should look like this. If their interest have been this, then the second paragraph should look like this, but you should modify this if they haven't done it in the last 30 days. And the the benefit of all of this customization is that it is done at scale without engagement from the operator. I'll give you a good example. So um, let's say for instance, you wanted to push PT out as a segment. You've yeah. got a new PT package you want to move out to an entire membership. Yeah. Under normal circumstances at the moment, you'd, you'd build your creative, you build your email, you may gender change it, you may AB test it, but you'll push it out in yeah. general. In an AI aspect, particularly using machine learning in this particular context, the AI will identify every individual who's got a probability of making a purchase. So that makes sure that the engagement's going to be received more beneficial, right? Because it knows the ones it won't. The second one is, is it may look at Lawrence and it will say that Lawrence will take a five pack, but he won't take a 10, so don't offer him a 10. Yeah. But don't offer him a one because you'll be leaving four packs on the table on that particular aspect of it. Yeah. So then that aspect is taken care of it'll then move into place the visuals that are relevant for you. So it's not going to go and show you a buff 21 year old, right? When it's, or, or even you're on gender, it's going to make sure it's got the particular visual that's put in place. If I serve out to a thousand members, a correct offer that is going to go to people with an interest at a price point they're interested in, with context which is relevant on an engagement tool which makes sense to them and a visual that matters, I am going to see a dramatic increase in the overall success of that particular communication. That's where AI is going to do it because that's not only a live implementation that's done, but every hour of every day that's happening without any human intervention whatsoever by somebody in an operator. Am I right in saying as long as you've shaped it correctly in the first instance, you're the one that shapes it and then yes. it takes it from there? Yeah, yeah, it is, right? And I know people want to believe that what AI is there to do is to remove people's roles and jobs. What AI does is take away the low value human aspects that humans generally don't want to be involved in. I sit in front of operators all of the time and many of them draw me the most elaborate member journeys. They're phenomenal to look at. And then I actually ask a few questions to establish if it's ever actually been in action. And nine times out of 10, it hasn't because it requires one person to do this or this system needs to talk to this system. Producing certainty on that is going to reduce the quantity of people that have to get involved in that. That's going to mean that the human element, the human capital, the most important part of our business is going to be employed in areas where they can make the most impact, not where they don't need to. This episode is brought to you by Share the Love. For every placement we make, we plant 50 trees in the name of our recruitment partners. Share the Love was inspired by David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet and thus far has seen us plant close to 20,000 trees, well on track for our 100,000 target. It's something we're incredibly passionate about. And if you'd like to find out more, you can visit either of our websites and find the Share the Love sections. Thanks very much.
So, career-wise so far, best career decision so far? You gave us a wonderful journey through your career. What's been the best one so far and why? Um, I, you know what? I should have an answer to that question, which is better, but the, <laughs> I, I would say that the, the best career decision obviously was making that telephone call um, to ask <laughs> yeah. for that job. Yeah. But I would also say that another one of the best career decisions I could have possibly made was leaving corporate life and starting the entrepreneurial journey, which, uh, so I'm gonna put a theme behind that. I, I back myself on both of those, right? And, and that's it. So the best, the best career decision was backing myself in those two circumstances where, quite frankly, the odds may not have been with me. It's so interesting, you, you <clears> actually <throat> stole my next question, just so you know. We explored this a little bit with Ty. Uh, Ty Menzies when he was here as well about he made the the promotion he had as to, to CEO with the lift brands happen himself when he went back to Australia after working in the UK for a while and started to buy a health club he backed himself in a situation I guess I guess two questions on that if I may how important is backing yourself in a career journey to, to, to get yourself where you want to be and secondly can it be learned do you have to be a certain type of person or do you think behaviors like that can be learned Second part's a harder one to ask. The first one, most definitely, um, how important it is, it, it, it's incredibly important, but yeah. I guess it's not something you can expect from everybody. I mean, if I look at the, the personalities that, that, that I work with, <clears throat> I wouldn't have an expectation that some of them would ever have the confidence to do that. But I also think that as a good manager, it's also my role to either encourage them to start to develop that as a capability or to start to pull them out. Now, it's not a case of telephoning up, so if get a telephone up and said, do you want to be the European sales manager? It would have been more of a case of, if I'd have got the telephone call and it was along the lines of, have you given consideration and would you want to consider putting yourself forward to it? So starting to prompt those type of behaviors on there. You're the only person who is going to consistently back yourself. Nobody else is going to do it for you. I would suggest there are very few careers of longativity that have success in them on the basis that they've allowed everybody else or just plain fate to drive it for them. And would you agree, I think there's an extension to that as well, it's backing yourself and the confidence to do it, it's one thing. Informing those around you of your intention has been a real common theme of here as well, about making sure people, so other people know that that's actually what you want to do. To a degree, but you, particularly in a corporate environment, in the competitive environment that can take place in those type of organizations, you, know, you are probably going to be inviting further noise into your career in the competitive sense. So, you know, because some people are quieter about the outcomes that they may want to take in place. But okay. I think that I would never be shy allowing um, my, the, the senior management to understand what my aspirations are because how can we expect for a senior manager to play a part in helping us meet our aspirations if we've never made them clear, okay. crystal clear? Let's talk about some basics that people can take away. And I don't say, I don't say basics from a basic level. I want, I want to know the fundamentals, the 20% value that people can take away. So some career advice, if that's okay, mm -hmm. for two, to two groups of people. One, people working within a business, you've worked in big, corporate environments and progress within it. What common traits, what behaviors, what values, known you as I do, I'm sure values will, will come up in your answer there, but what, what do they have to show? Second thing, from an entrepreneurial point of view, you've done it, you've gone out and done it for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, what advice would you give to people who may be thinking about stepping out into that entrepreneurial world? I think from a corporate perspective, 
I think you've got to look beyond the role that you are employed for. Yeah. And not just because that then gives you the possibility of being brought into other roles because of skills, but because it gives you an understanding of whether you've even got an interest to do it. Yeah. If you're going to move into a C-level role, the necessity to understand that it is no longer about your personal productivity and your ability to get productivity from a wider audience which matters. So, you know, one of the biggest issues that you come across, particularly for CEOs, is that they move from an operationally capable role where they're performing very well, and then what they don't realize is the necessity to then become the best communicator in the business going forward. Communication is a skill that can be acquired, but it does take a lot of practice. And it is by having the confidence in both yourself and your subject matter that they're doing there. So my suggestion for anyone who is looking to move upwards is to try and understand what aspects of the role that they would like to attain they would need to do. There is no reason why they cannot expose themselves to it on that aspect. Completely and then look at the human characteristics which will be necessary and understand whether they've got them. Because if I'm looking for a CEO in my business to replace me, I can guarantee you the first thing I'm looking for is communication. Really? Right? Because if they cannot communicate the message, if they cannot communicate both internally, externally, investors and, and the board, then they're not going to be able to do that. It's by its confidence, yeah, isn't it? It's, it's, it's all it's, levels. Yeah, it is. And it is the primary. Entrepreneurially? Yeah. I'll be frank, um, I think that people should clearly understand whether it is for them. I know we're in a culture at the moment where the entrepreneur's journey is viewed as the hero's journey and uh, it, it's something which many people are encouraged to go down. You sit here yourself, you know, after nine years of running your business, the ups and the downs, the highs are fantastic and the lows are terrible. I agree. You need to be prepared for that. And I don't think that people truly are on that side. My only thing, and if you look at all of my journey so far, my entrepreneurial journey has always been about fixing a problem, whether it be a problem I had or whether it be a problem I believe that the industry had as a whole. Yeah. Any entrepreneurial journey which is not about fixing a problem is unlikely to produce the results that can be sustained over a period of time. So first and foremost, do, do you want to do it? Really? Are you prepared for the journey? Do you know this is five years as a pair as a minimum on that side? And then what is it the problem that you want to solve? And do you have both the smarts and the passion to do so? Because it gets dull once you start to get in the weeds. It gets dull when it's not talking about the idea of people and it's actually having to do it. It gets really painful when the first 20 people you show it to go, no, no clue what you're trying to do there. It's just not going to work. Anyone who's thinking about starting a business should rewind for the previous three minutes and listen to that part again. Yeah, it's, yes. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, I'm not I'm <laughs> sure you don't, we don't regret doing it. Of course not. But, but it's, we, it's we, amazing. Certainly would have, we, we certainly would have had a word of ourselves you, and prepared ourselves yeah. differently for the journey. But if you have the passion for it and if it's within you and if, if you feel so compelled there's nothing else than yeah. you have to do it, then you, it helps to get through those points. Yeah. But it's still hard. Um, I want to come back to a point you mentioned earlier. You mentioned how important luck plays in, I guess, anything, but yeah. certainly in terms of your, your path and your journey. Would you mind telling us a bit more about maybe where that's come up in your career? 
Uh, well, we benefited. The, the, the first piece of luck I had was to be born to the parents I was born to, right? Because if I wasn't born to them, none of this would have been remotely possible because it wasn't just that I was born, which in itself is a good thing. <laughs> it was that I was brought up in a household where I was given the opportunity to understand business and where commerce and business was driven. And, and an element you'll hear from Ty as well, funny enough, in his story as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the next element of luck is that, you know, I, I met my wife that, you know, I've been with for over 30 years now and that she has stayed with me um, despite every reason why she shouldn't have been Jonathan those elements of luck are there because when you've got that stability in, in those two particular areas on there um, you've got to yeah, look at the moment, right? Am I living look at the moment? There's an element of it because if ChatGPT hadn't have been successful in October, would I be riding an AI wave? Yes, most definitely we were doing very well over the last few years, yeah. but we're doing 3x what we were doing over the last few years because we've currently got this tailwind yeah. when it comes to, to that particular aspect. So. You know, their look plays a part. When people build their narrative of their careers to date, they generally knit it together as if it naturally flowed one into the other. There is not one, career, one move in my career that didn't have an element of luck that made it even more successful or helped me out even more. If I remove luck from each one of them, it, yeah, we wouldn't be dealing with anything like what yeah, we're dealing with today. Okay. Where can people go to learn more about what's inspired you in your career journey? Are there books, are there podcasts, are there things that really inspired you from a career point of view? But also, we obviously talked about AI a lot. Any, any books around AI and stuff you think they could point in the direction where they can learn more? The, if I can, if you were to say to me, what was the one action that I would ask anybody to do to progress in life, it is to read more. Um, I am very open and you know, to my team, they are very annoyed with me, but I will read anything between 80 and 100 books a year. I dedicate a large part of the day, two to three hours to reading books. I'm not a fiction reader. It's all predominantly non-fiction for obvious reasons. But I think that for any area where I want to learn to, if I can go to a book where in 250 pages an individual has condensed 10, 15, 20 years worth of their knowledge, I am definitely going to come out better yeah. than what Han. I have a reading structure which um, I have a variety of interests which I have, whether they be around economics, finance, whether they be about macroeconomic stuff, or whether they be about decision making, which I think is a very large part of life. And I have a framework in there. So there's a, a number of books. Um, there's The Wisdom of Munger by uh, Peter Bellerin, which is a, a thick tomb. It's not about Munger as such, but it helps people to understand the cognitive biases that they have around the actions they take okay. every day. Okay. And by learning about yourself, you then reduce the risk of you falling into them. Uh, Robert Greene is probably no more for the 48 Laws of Power, but the laws of human nature, again, why these probably sound a little bit highfalutin in, in that respect. If you want to be successful in any career, in any aspect of it, the more you know about yourself, the better understanding you have about the people around you is what is going to drive overall performance. When I fail, it's because of me. When I am successful, it's because of me and the people around me, but how I interpreted what was going on around me before. So nice. I put a large element of work into understanding that aspect as well. 
when it comes to AI, I, I don't go to blogs ever, and I'll be frank, that's because I come from an industry where everything is basically SEO optimized to hell, and it's just keyword, keyword, keyword. So you know, I think quite frankly, if you want to learn about a subject, you very, you, you very much need to go to a book on that particular subject on that side of Good things. Advice, thank you. Um, AI, listen, there's, there's a great deal of them, and I think when the, um, when I think about which ones I would do, I forget the author now, the one that I've referred to a lot has it's called Prediction Machines. Okay. Um, and that is an extremely good book on that side. What you want to look at is probably more the use cases rather than looking at how things are being built. Yes. Because the, the math element, unless you enjoy calculus at school, it's not gonna be an area you're gonna find too enthralling. But looking at how people who are practitioners rather than experts then put into a book use cases, that's probably the best place to start. Okay. Two questions around interviews and preparations for interviews. We'll, we'll phrase them as old school and new school. Okay. So in terms of people getting ready, for people you've interviewed, interviewed hundreds of thousands of people over the years, tips for people how they can interview better and represent themselves better in the interview process. What would be one, two, three tips you give to people? I think the basic one, and you're still amazed how many times it happens, is turning up on time. Yeah. I know it sounds utterly ridiculous. I'm even embarrassed by saying it, but you know, when you, particularly at the moment, even on, on Zoom, right, you, the amount of times I'm still sitting there five minutes in, yeah. right, and they'll say, oh, but I wasn't able to get on with the Zoom, right? Test out the links, do all of those things. That's the, the first and foremost. Um, I, I've heard the, the, this from guests on your podcast before, and it's a really good one as well, which is asking people at the end, have any concerns come up today? Right? Yeah. Um, have you seen any reason why I would not progress? Particularly if you're in a commercial role, right? one of the major things which salespeople fail to do on a regular basis is ask for the business. If they don't ask for the business, well, you should also in the same for recruitment. Yeah. When you're on there, just say, is there anything there today that would give you concern that you don't think I'll be progressing to the next stage? Or is there any reasons why you don't think I should get the role? You know, you, depending on the actual role itself, I think that that is a great opportunity for you to show that you've got the confidence in yourself and the confidence to ask difficult questions. Nice. Careers and life generally come down to people's ability to be uncomfortable and to work within difficult situations. Whenever I see businesses which fail, it's because they weren't prepared to take a hold of what reality was and they weren't prepared to have difficult conversations with stakeholders. When I see teams which are failing, it's generally because people wasn't prepared to have the difficult conversations. If you in an interview process can show the initiative, the energy, and those type of aspects, which can be difficult, but you can do it, and then have the confidence to ask at the end, something like that, you're gonna put yourself at least in the top of my thinking when it goes into the process. I spoke about that quite a lot with Catherine Fermer. Catherine's been a mentor of mine in the industry. We spoke about it a lot on her podcast as well. She taught me the, the power of a difficult conversation yes. and telling people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Yes, it's definitely. It's so absolutely vitally important. Um, we've spoken a bit on this podcast with a variety of guests. Over time, the candidate journey has become more and more important, treating candidates correctly and providing the right journey for them to get as they apply for a role. How important is it to you, obviously, within, within Keep Me, I guess? It's, it's very important for me because, as you know, the longevity of the team. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, so you know, when you've got team members that have been with you for three or four businesses in 16 years and you've got you know, sales teams that, you know, where they've been with you seven and eight years apiece, um, it is very, very important that what they realize what they are coming into. So it is not a case of them coming from the role. We are employing people to be with us on a journey for as long as we can keep going on Absolutely. that side. 
That means that you need to involve the wider team into that as well to make sure, because as a hiring manager, sometimes that immediate requirement has to get done. We need to get them in. It doesn't really matter the thing. I'm gonna make the concession, I'm gonna hire them, I'm gonna get them in through the door because that is them being done and it's not on my list. If that happens too often, you are gonna dilute the capabilities of the team quite quickly. The best way to deal with that is to, so the way I do it is I don't have the process. I invite them to speak to anybody in the business. Okay. Who would you like to speak to? Do you want to speak to the director of marketing? Do you want to speak to one of the CS team? Would you like to speak to an AE? Who do you want to speak to? If they don't want to speak to anyone, by the way, then I'm probably going to start to have a few reservations. But that in turn will then start, I will make sure that when they speak to the next person, they're encouraged to do that again. I want them as exposed as possible to both the good, the bad, the ugly, so that when they walk in through the door, the expectations of what's demanded of them is very, very clear. And this might be an obvious one, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. As to all levels, so not just for your senior hires, you ask anybody if they can- Anybody, anybody at all, yes, wow, anybody at all. I like that a lot. Yeah, and that, that's why I think we, that's we, why we, we retain. That's why we do it so. Good, that's yeah. why we retain, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and retention is really, is not being an issue. And you know, again, if we were looking at factors of success, the consistency of the team and being able to rely on the same team on a regular basis without having to go into ramp up periods and hiring periods is one of the reasons why we can maintain the pace that we do as a business because we can rely that the team are going to be there. I'm not worried about whether people are going to be there next year. I've got an expectation 80 to 85% that everybody will be there next year, nice. not 50-50. I said about old school, I'm now going to jump back to that one and say about the new school. Where do you think the impact of AI will land on that job search process? So people are looking for, not necessarily hires of, of people, but people looking for a job. Where will AI, do you think, impact that journey the most? Go in the next few years. I, uh, well, I, I think one of the obvious ways to look at that, if I looked at it from a large language model perspective, is having the capacity to go to a particular website, uh, whether it be a Glassdoor or whoever else on there, and write in a natural language what type of job I'm looking for, right? But not as in a role, as in the company culture. Yeah. understanding uh, what retention's been like in the organization, understanding, so if I was to write, I would like a role as a product manager in a software company that was based in the um, south of England. I've got this salary. I'd like a culture that had people moving up every two or three years. I'd like the incentive compensation to look along those lines. I'd like the CEO to have a rating of this. I would like the culture to be of identified this. I'd like to know what their ESG initiatives were. If I could just put that in, and then the large language model then produces it. Now, it doesn't just produce it just by looking at a database table. It trawls all of the previous websites. It goes through all of those particular aspects. And then in doing that, it can generate a much better list to me. Currently, we've got more candidates than roles in many, many respects, but that will move aside. So at the moment, I'd like to turn that on its head and say from a account, I want a candidate that has demonstrated this, 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 and this, not just in their CV, because nowadays it's very easy with all of the other communication channels to be able to take data and understand a lot more about a candidate. Completely agree. You're a very busy man. There's so much more I want to ask you. It doesn't mean we have to do a part two, just so you know as well. But I'm going to bring it to the last couple of questions. You've been able to pass on so much information, not just from AI point of view, which is amazing to have you here to do that, but from your own career journey, there's lots of learnings in that, and actually clear advice as well. If someone could take away a one thing, what's the one thing that you would pass on knowledge-wise to help people who maybe are hiring or even looking for a job or their career, they're frustrated. What piece of what piece of advice would you pass on? 
Um, I'm going to say I'm going to go to the back yourself. So I, I will say I will keep with that one and say, you know, back yourself in each one of those circumstances. If you're sitting in front of me in any role and you're expressing to me the confidence that you have in yourself, then you are in turn going to give me the opportunity to show you I have confidence in Love you. It. If you're in front of me and I don't see confidence in you, unfortunately, I'm not likely to be the one that's going to be able to give it to you. So I'm probably going to pass. Nice. Last, last point. Well, we always like to ask our guests if they would, who would like that to recommend, who they think would make a great guest on Love Your Career podcast going forward. Um, who would you recommend? You know, I, 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 you know, I thought about this one, and uh, Andy King. From okay. GM Active, yeah. I think Andy's um, representative of many things which are good in this industry as well. Yeah, um, I think that uh, Joe Matthews, the founder of Ten, as well, um, which is not a million miles away, but many clubs yeah. around here would be good on that one. I know you only gave me two, and I, I only gave me one. And I gave you <laughs> two, and then I'm going to add one in there as well, which is on the Bender community because I think he really deserves, uh, and he's got so much to add. Is Jack Mallins from Member? Okay, um, Jack, you know, Jack is been in his business here uh, 15 years now and they're probably the largest club management software company in the world that people don't realize right because they have SEB but he started out as a PT so they're three interesting people who I listen to and would be prepared to wonderful and he's already booked in which is amazing so Good. that's awesome he's Good. Busy. I'm recording him in a couple of weeks but I will reach out to Joe and Jack so really really appreciate that and I really absolutely appreciate all your time today as well so much knowledge to be able to pass on so thank you so much thanks for the opportunity Hope you loved that episode. Um, really, truly, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Ian. I thought it was a great guest. Uh, my three things um, from the episode. My first one is just around the general conversation we had about AI, its uses, how long it's been in play, and its future uses for the fitness industry. I just thought it was obviously clearly new ground for the podcast, and I thought it was just a really interesting conversation. And thanks so much for Ian for his insight and expertise on that particular point. My second point was about communication, the, the high value that Ian put on, the, on the, the quality of communication and how important that skill is, particularly in leadership teams. I thought it was just a really interesting point. And again, something quite new um, that hasn't really come up before in, in, in terms of its clarity. And the last one was um, for any budding entrepreneurs out there, just how Ian summed up his entrepreneur journey, which has always been about either fixing a problem that he feels or, or, or someone's been identified. But entrepreneurism truly is about fixing a problem. Just a really great topic. Thanks very much.